Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton. African sun, you watch over the night The rhino's last hero who's willing to fight Searching the shadows of the African plain To turn the tide on poaching Welcome back to the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 135 the story of Rhino Man and South African Park Rangers. Now this week I'm going to be talking with John Jerko II. John is a filmmaker, podcaster, and lover of books, nature, and adventure. He grew up in rural Northeast Ohio in the village of Yankee Lake, and from a young age was immersed in nature. After studying film, for two, he spent two years living in Los Angeles, working in the camera department on indie films. He produced and directed corporate videos for big brands in Atlanta, Georgia, and since 2018, he's been the lead producer and director on the film Rhino Man. What's Rhino Man? It's a feature-length documentary about South African field rangers who risk their lives to protect the rhinos from being poached into extinction. During the conversation, John's going to fill us in on why rhinos need protection, who and how locals become park rangers, and how everyday people can help. He's also going to tell us a story about a very special park ranger, Anton, who dedicated and ultimately gave his life protecting these animals. So let's dive right in. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, As you heard in the intro, I'm joined by John Jerko II, the lead director of Rhino Man the movie. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Jason. Thank you so much for having me on here. It's oh, th- an honor. Thanks for joining me. I, you know, I can I can say you are the first director of a movie that I have <laughs> ever uh, had on the podcast. And I'm pretty sure I can say you're the first director of a movie I've ever actually talked to. So uh, this is a unique experience for me. Uh, so you're a director. We have this movie, Rhino Man. Um, so... We, you know, I want to start with what is the movie about? Um, So, you know, in your best movie trailer voice, (laughs) (laughs) in a world gone mad. um, Exactly. What, what is Rhino Man? You know, what should get people excited about this movie? Yeah, absolutely. So Rhino Man is the story of the South African field rangers and their mission to protect the rhinos from being poached to extinction. So it's really following the human side of the story with this rhino poaching crisis as the backdrop. And you've been working on this for years, uh, you know, because some people may not realize um, I didn't for the longest time. Like, it's not like you just go and film and, and like everything's like one take and and, you know, you can knock it out in a month. Like it takes a long time to get everything you need on on film, uh, everything, you know, post-production, all that stuff. So 
that leads into you got stuck in Africa during the pandemic. Uh, what what was that like? I can't. I, I imagine that was a vastly different experience than me being stuck at home. Uh, dur- you know, for a couple months during the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely, Jason. And yeah, I'll get to that story. But just for quick context, this film has been under production since I believe 2015. And it was started by a nonprofit and a partner company. And I jumped into it in 2018. And I've been working on it part time for a couple of years, and then almost more than full time for the last two years. So it's, it's been quite the journey. And yeah, originally, I was going back to South Africa in 2020 to capture more more footage for the film, which didn't end up happening. It's a crazy story. I ended up shooting a whole new film, but I had this plan, you know, a new treatment was scripted up and I bought equipment and I was supposed to leave on March 31st. And I remember my buddy, Matt, and another friend in South Africa messaged me both at the same time. And they were like, Hey, if you don't get here in two days, I think this was March 13th or something like that. Uh, you're not going to be able to get into the country because they're locking the borders down. So at that minute, I I kind of had a, oh crap moment. (laughs) And, and I looked up tickets and everything. I had to buy a whole new ticket. I managed to get on the last flight from Atlanta, Georgia to South Africa to Johannesburg. And I think I landed there on March 16th. And luckily it was easy. I just kind of like snuck right in the border. I think they were doing some temperature checks, but other than that, it wasn't too strict yet. And yeah, I ended up staying there for nine months which was a pretty wild adventure in itself. And I'm happy to go into that more, but uh, yeah, it was definitely not planned. I was supposed to be there two, maybe three months at the most. That's interesting to me because a lot of people were already abroad and were trying to get back into the United States before (laughs) we shut the borders down to all whole host of countries. Meanwhile, you're like, I got to get out of here. I got to get in this other country before they shut their borders down. Yeah. uh, Get into that story a little bit. Like what, what was it like for nine months being in a foreign country in what we now sort of regard as like unprecedented times? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember getting ready for that. I had family and friends all saying, this is crazy. What are you doing? The, the healthcare system sucks there. And, you know, you don't want to go there. Uh, who knows what's going to happen? And I just kind of trusted that, you know, it's going to be the better story, whatever happens. So <laughs> I kind of just went for it. And yeah, I mean, it was, I feel like the first couple of months was really amazing because the world kind of shut down and, you know, the film was on hold. We had some corporate sponsors that were helping us buy it out from the production company. So the nonprofit would own it completely out. And that was on hold and we weren't really able to shoot anything. So it was just these like two months of hanging out with one of my best friends at this amazing home he had on this, this wildlife estate. Raptors View is what it's called in Hood Sprite. And originally donors were supposed to be coming there to see the nonprofit project and all these things. But because the borders were shut down, it was just uh, him and I we were there on this amazing property with you know, giraffes coming and drinking out of the pool and zebras walking around. And I have a hard time calling them zebras now because they say zebra down there. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, spending a lot of time just outside with nature, drinking coffee in the mornings, writing, thinking. And we had a really close relationship with the Timavati Private Nature Reserve. So we did have the opportunity to go out there and just explore some ideas of what we would maybe shoot with Rhino Man or potentially a new film that we were kind of brainstorming if Rhino Man wasn't able to happen and spend a ton of time out there with these rangers just 
driving around through the bush, um, getting to know them, talking to them. And it's amazing how, I mean, their eyesight is amazing. I'd see like a leopard hundreds of yards away in a tree and I'd be like, I, it would take me 15 minutes <laughs> to catch up and see it. Uh, but yeah, I just spent a, a, an amazing time there seeing all this wildlife. I became, I became kind of an amateur birder in the meantime as well, because I had a couple of close friends that were really into birds, which is a, a really cool experience to, to start to learn the calls. And I feel like what I always say is it's like going from standard deaf to high definition when you're outside, because all of a sudden you hear these sounds and you're like, oh, that's that bird. And that's this bird. And, you know, they're coming in this time of year and you start like learning the relationships between them and the ecosystem. So that was really cool. And then we spent four and a half, five months shooting a whole new film about rangers going through a selection program and seeing them at their homes in the communities. And it's all in another language, Chitsanga. And, and that was just kind of a wild experience. So yeah, I just, I just kept extending my visa since the borders were locked down and most of the government was shut down. They basically took the stance of if you're here, just keep staying if you want to. Uh, I could have taken a repatriation flight, but I was like, this is kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity. So I, I stuck it out for nine months and definitely don't regret it. Yeah, that sounds amazing. You know, to to be a lot of people sort of became amateur birders uh, during the <laughs> pandemic. You did it in another country with birds that I can't even fathom. Like that, that's that's cool. Yeah, you mentioned the Rangers uh, and this sort of new film that that you're going to do. But for this one, you know, tell us a little about a little bit about the Rangers. Uh, you know, who becomes the Rangers? You know, what are these just random people that decide they want to be a ranger? Um, you know, what are they doing to protect these rhinos? Yeah. So to give some context, you know, South Africa kind of has a unique history. Uh, went through a time, uh, apartheid where there was a, a, a definite, definite separation between black and white. And many of the people in the black communities were pushed to very poor areas. Uh, families were separated, you know, men had to go off to jobs that were miles away in mines, a lot of land, uh, they were pushed off of that then became some of these reserves, which creates a lot of tension that's there now. So post apartheid, there's still a lot of this poverty. There's a lot of, um, resentment. It's still kind of on both sides in, in some areas, things are healing, but it's definitely there kind of under the surface. And so. Kruger National Park is kind of the area that I've spent most of my time in South Africa and where a lot of the rhino poaching crisis began and is still prevalent today. So that's kind of the backdrop for these rangers. I mean, they're, they're doing a lot of similar stuff that rangers are doing around the world, even in the U.S. on the conservation side, but they have a lot of the law enforcement side has taken kind of a, the majority of it. So there's a lot of poaching going on, a lot of violence, a lot of threats to these rangers. But many of the rangers are from these communities that border Kruger National Park. I believe there's over two, somewhere between two and three million people live on the border of Kruger National Park. It's 2,000 hectares, sorry, two million hectares, which I think is close to four million acres. Uh, so it's, it's as big as some of the small countries in Europe. It's a huge amount of land to protect. And these communities, like I mentioned, are in a very impoverished state. There's very little opportunity for jobs. It's hard for people to find jobs and a ranger is depending on who you ask it is a respectable job and has a decent wage um it's still compared to u.s salaries i mean it's it's nothing and it's kind of amazing when you start to learn how much people are being paid over there but 
you know, I think for a lot of people, this is a way to support their family, but the people that really make it as Rangers and are doing the job, I've met so many, some of the most amazing human beings I've ever met in my life. And I remember the first trip I went in 2018, meeting some of these men and women. And there's just such a passion for what they're doing. You know, for a lot of them, it really is a calling. It's something that they can't imagine living without or doing something else. Uh, so they're very dedicated to this job and it's a tough job. I mean, there's, they're on deployment for usually 28 days at a time away from their families out in the bush. Maybe they get a week off and then they go back. So there's a lot of challenges that we can get into, but just to say, I mean, there's, they're amazing people, amazing human beings. Uh, most of them are coming from these communities that, that border these parks. Before we get into those challenges, uh, you mentioned the pay is not on the same aspect of, as, you know, in the United States and more developed countries, I guess. Uh, you know, here in the United States, our park rangers are paid for by the government, right? Like the mm -hmm. government, uh, you know, they are government employees, federal government employees or state, I guess, if it's a state park. Um, but who's like, who's who's paying these park rangers is it the government there is it whoever controls that reserve who's yeah. the employer i guess yeah so it's a mix like kruger national park is a national park so it's south african national parks sand parks for short uh it's their biggest park and there are some other national parks kind of peppered throughout the country and so in those cases it is the government that's employing those rangers but there's also uh quite a few private reserves throughout the Kruger region that kind of border the park and have fences open to it. Um, KwaZulu-Natal, which is a province that's kind of south of that area. There's a lot of big national parks and private parks there. Uh, there's private parks all over. I mean, tourism is one of the biggest industries in South Africa, especially centered around wildlife and safaris and things like that. So it, it varies a lot. Uh, there are some of the reserve, the private reserves probably pay a little better, not all of them, but some of the more well-to-do ones. Uh, have better paid ranger and teams and better support for them. Uh, Kruger National Park, you know, it's always a challenge. There's always a lot of politics and things going on in the background. And there's a lot of people fighting for better pay and different things like that. But, uh, you know, there's been times where it's been really tough for some of those men and women. Um, so, yeah, it varies a lot. I mean, I, I'm trying to remember some of the numbers, but I think it's safe to say that, you know, a lot of these rangers are making on the good end maybe $1,000 a month US, maybe a little more than that. But it's it's very low. And a, a lot of these rangers too are supporting not only their immediate family and often are the sole breadwinner for the family, but these families are very interconnected. The communities are very tight knit. And, you know, many of these rangers are supporting other family members like cousins or aunts and uncles, grandparents. So it could be 10 to 15 people that they're supporting with this small salary. So it's it, it makes it very challenging, especially we can get into this later too, with some of the corruption and some of the temptations that, that make it really tough for these Rangers, especially around this poaching crisis with the rhinos. Ooh, that's, uh, that's definitely poverty wages. Um, you know, especially when you think about it for, you know, in the United States and, and most of Europe and things of that nature, it's, ooh, that's, I feel like it has to be, I mean, I guess part of it is if, if you don't have a better option, right, you're going to go that route. But then also, you know, you're really going to have to love what you do to be able to do it for a while. Um, what are, what are some of those 
challenges that they face. Um, I feel like the the most obvious one, if there's poachers out there, <laughs> I'm sure they don't want to get caught, right? So the you know mm-hmm. it's a dangerous situation. Um, can you talk about that a little bit, and then also you know what else they face on a day to day basis? Yeah, for sure. And maybe just to to back up real quick because you mentioned you know how passionate some of these people have to be to do this job and a big part of the film is following a selection program a ranger selection program that ruben de who's kind of one of the main characters in the film he's an amazing ranger trainer had an amazing partner martin tembu who passed and that's kind of a part of the storyline too but he takes these 41 men young men through this selection process and you know not only is the job tough on the other end but up front they have to go through a, a very fi- physically rigorous uh, battery test of running, push-ups, sleep deprivation, you know, kind of getting yelled at. It's very military style, uh, but it, part of it is to weed out people that may not really have the passion for the job because they don't want people just getting it for the wage. Even though these wages are lower, it's still like fairly decent compared to some other jobs. And you know, the reason is because there are these temptations when it comes to the poaching side and the crime syndicates. So moving into the challenges, you know, you have the same challenges that a lot of rangers face, just some of the the wildlife can, you know, especially in, in Africa, you've got not only lions, but there's, you know, buffaloes, hippos are some of the most dangerous animals. Elephants can be extremely dangerous. Uh, snakes. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of stuff they have to be very familiar with and have a lot of respect for that wildlife because, uh, I mean, it happens all the time. I remember a month or two ago, there was a ranger lost in Kruger to a buffalo charge uh, that took him out. So so you have that side of it. But then with this poaching crisis, and maybe I can set up a little bit of context to, to the poaching crisis too. Uh, for I think it was about 2008. Uh, <clears throat> the rhino poaching crisis before that wasn't very severe. You know, there'd be a couple lost here and there throughout the year and some of it was more subsistence poaching and just basic you know either meat or just things to try and pay for the family stuff like that excuse me but 2008 to 2012 2015 the poaching crisis got to the point where at the highest it was about 15 12 1200 to 1500 rhinos per year that were being poached uh in south africa which uh, is is a crazy number. I think it's more than three a day on average. And the reason for that is because uh, partially the economics in Southeast Asia and China, you know, people were starting to have more money, more wealth. And traditionally, rhino horn was used for some medicinal purposes, one of them being a minor, uh, excuse me, a minor pain reliever, you know, fever reducer, sort of like aspirin which, you know, aspirin does a better job. So that's not really a great argument. Uh, and essentially rhino horn is keratin, which is like your hair or your na- fingernails, that type of material. So there's not really any medicinal value that's been fi- found with modern science. But later on, there were some other things. It's kind of become a status symbol. Uh, I believe a prime minister in Vietnam said that it cured his grandmother's cancer or his mother's cancer which kind of sparked this whole new demand for rhino horn to, you know, you you can kind of imagine if you're, you're somewhere and you start to believe that this thing could cure your family members cancer, you know, why not try it at least. And so it it really pushed this demand through the roof. And so you had this demand coming from Asia 
and these very poor communities living around the national park. And it was just kind of prime pickings for these crime syndicates to come in and, and coerce people to, you know, it could be a year's wage to give them information or poach a rhino, which then they sell for, you know, I think at the height of it, it was close to $500,000 a kill or for a horn. So uh, like 60,000 a kilogram, it's come down some since then from a lot of, for a lot of reasons, wild aid's done a lot of great stuff to reduce demand over there and educate people. But yeah, so you had, you had these people that were desperate coming into these parks armed and willing to risk their lives to take these rhinos. And so from 2008 on, it really became important for these rangers to go from what was traditionally more, you know, maintaining roads, uh, watching the wildlife research, uh, helping tourists, things like that, to this law enforcement side really going through the roof uh, to protect these rhinos. And so, yeah, you have not only the wildlife and things that could go wrong out in the field, but you have these poachers and these crime syndicates that are hell-bent on killing these rhinos for the horns. And, you know, the rangers have to face being shot at when they're out there, when they're protecting the rhinos, when there's these incursions. But then on the outside, there's also threats to family members. There's threats to them. You know, oftentimes they'll try to corrupt them first and get them to give information so that they could, you know, we'll give you so much money to just look the other way, tell us where the rhinos are, look the other way, and we'll come in and do our thing. Uh, if they don't go along with that, then oftentimes they'll start threatening them saying, you know, we'll kill your family. We'll, we'll, you know, give you a bad name in public. We'll say you're a poacher, do these things. You know, that happened to, Anton Zimba, who's the main one of the main characters in the film, he's a ranger. He had a, at a time where basically people reported on him and said he was a poacher and the police broke into his house and searched his house and all this stuff. And just, you know, it was a tough time for him because he was kind of being, his family was being disgraced in the community when he was this amazing, dedicated human being to this cause. And uh, yeah, just really took a lot of wind out of his sails for a while. So yeah, the dangers are are great and and mounting. And even though in the last four or five years, the poaching numbers have gone down to some degree, there's signs that post COVID it's starting to spike again. And, you know, there's, there's still a lot of threats to these rangers. So um, what is, what does protecting rhinos look like for the, these rangers? Is it, um, trying to arrest poachers or is it trying to just sort of scare them off? I mean, is it, you see a poacher shoot on site? I mean, what's it like over there? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I think it's evolved over time and there are people that have, have pushed for shoot on site and things like that, but you know, the government has pushed back on that. And I think rightfully so, you know, as, as angry as you could get at these situations, you don't want the case where someone's just, lost out there and you're shooting them because you see them and they might be a poacher or at least giving people a chance to give up um which is hard to say when you know they're likely going to shoot back and threaten your life but it's that balance on like with the ethics and the morals of it and and how to do that right but yeah i mean over the years these rangers have really been trained in in kind of a paramilitary um techniques so Oftentimes they stay out in pickets at different parts of these reserves. There's a lot of times where they're moving around. You know, I think a big thing combating poachers is you never want to have a, a strong routine because they're always, the poachers are always trying to one up. It's like an arms race. And if they see you're in a routine, they'll learn it and then they'll find a way to, to kind of break through and get in. 
And so it's, it's that it's patrols, you know, they're, they're armed usually with semi-automatic rifles, assault rifles. And, uh, a lot of them have bulletproof vests. I think over the years they've gotten better and better equipment in a lot of these places, especially Timbavadi, which we support. Uh, I've seen like their pickets go from pretty rough places to stay to these really nice homes and things like that. So they're out there doing patrols, kind of changing it up. Helicopters get involved. Uh, canine units have become a really big asset in the last five, six, seven years. Uh, everything from, you know, one ranger with a canine going on patrols to uh, in Kruger National Park, they'll call in helicopters from the Southern African Wildlife College where they have an amazing dog training program there. And they bring in hounds, which I believe were brought in from Texas, actually. They brought in a bunch of hounds there and they'll take like five or six of them on this helicopter ride, <laughs> drop them off. They get the scent and they just let them run. And then they get back up in the helicopter and follow them and guide them. And the dogs will just run the poacher down and, and kind of surround them so that they can then come in and apprehend them. So yeah, it's, it's a mix of a lot of different tactics. You know, I think ultimately they're with good patrols, good surveillance, good fences, uh, detection systems, trying to deter people from even doing it, uh, number one. But then when people do get into the park, being able to detect them quickly and then try to apprehend them as fast as they can with hopefully without anyone getting injured or killed. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. When I thought about like what park rangers are, what their job would entail protecting rhinos, I envisioned three, four, five people uh, finding a rhino and basically just like following that rhino around and making mm -hmm. sure no one got close. And by close, I mean like within a half a mile or a mile or something like that. Uh, but they're actively like trying to run down these people if they come across, I'm assuming like footprints or mm. information that someone's around. Yeah. I mean, I guess part of it is just, you realize the size of these reserves and like Kruger national park, how big it is. Timbavati private nature reserve where we follow Anton, our main hero. It's 55,000 hectares, which I think is about 110,000 acres. So it's a large, large amount of land. And there are about 40 rangers, give or take a few, depending on, you know, how many people they have employed at the time. And those rangers aren't all deployed at the same time. So, you know, imagine 20 to 30 rangers protecting 110,000 acres. And there's quite a few rhinos. There's no way you could kind of stand and watch them all. And, you know, they keep track of where they're moving. So they have a sense and are able to, you know, kind of get in between the poachers if they find out there's an incursion or something. But yeah, it's mostly just setting up these patrols, uh, checking fence lines, looking for footprints. Uh, you know, they have people within the communities that they're communicating with. If if they hear that someone's trying to poach, trying to get information, uh, I mean, it really is comparable to a war in a lot of ways because there's this kind of paramilitary side. There's intelligence. There's surveillance. There's fence lines, detection systems. Um, things happening outside of the parks to try and deter or get information. So yeah, it's a, it's a huge undertaking and a lot of different people and partners have come together to, to really give them a chance um, to, to stop these. And we could go into two. I mean, it's, you know, I think Anton, our, our main character also always said that the Rangers are the, the final line of defense, but really things need to happen 
outside of the park. The culture needs to change. Opportunities need to come. Communities need to be more involved. Uh, that's a big part of what the nonprofit Global Conservation Corps is engaged in now, inspired by Anton uh, to, to do more of that work because, you know, these rangers with this amount of space, with this much demand for the rhinos, it's, you know, a slow, slowly losing battle if things don't change in a, in a bigger picture sense around the world and in the region. Yeah, I mean, like you said, uh, the rangers are the last line of defense when it comes to stopping them, but really it's trying to change the mindset of the community that if they get approached to provide information that they shouldn't give it up, which I, I'm not going to totally throw um, those those members of the community under the bus because, you know, if someone is threatening your, 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 your me or threatening my family, um, coming to me with, you know, the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, you know, for information or for where a rhino is, like, I, I can understand um, the temptation or the thinking that goes behind that. But really, you know, having organizations, having that sort of multi-prong approach that just has that last line of defense, yeah, but we need to try to educate the community and try to keep, you know, if, if, if no one wants to poach, then you don't have to worry about catching poachers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, honestly, when I got into this whole project, I originally saw a trailer that they had made that attracted me to the, this production company, got a job there a year later and, and kind of just got involved. But I remember that first trip to South Africa, you start to realize that a lot of, a lot of the people in the community, a lot of the youth, even though they might live within a mile or two of this fence line, have never seen wildlife for themselves because there's just so much separation. There's such a wealth gap, you know, historically there hasn't been, hasn't been a lot of effort to, uh, bring these communities in and make them a part of what's going on in the conservation spaces spaces. A lot has changed in the last 10, 15 years. And there are a lot of great organizations and reserves starting to work more towards this. But, you know, if you don't, if you've never seen it and your family is in a desperate position, uh, you need money, someone comes and offers it. And like you said, if, if you don't take that offer, there's, there can be threats. It's really hard to imagine doing something else, you know, you kind of get put in this between a rock and a hard place. And these syndicates are, um, I mean, they're, they're pretty terrible people. And they, they come in and they, they'll find someone that's sitting at a bar, you know, sad, broken down, you know, maybe they have a whole bunch of bills that they owe and they start talking to them and slowly work their way in. And then all of a sudden they're like, well, you know, we could help you with that, with a little bit of this, just do this, start out small. And then once you get hooked, they're just going to keep ratcheting it up. And if you try to back out, you're not going to be able to get out of it. So yeah, that that's a huge problem. And it's, it's a lot that needs to go into it because it's not just education, which Global Conservation Corps, we have this Future Rangers program, which is about conservation education for the youth, but then giving them these experiences and partnering with uh, reserves and other partners to be able to bring children into the reserves and see wildlife for the first time, get that inspiration. And then also kind of track them through an app that we're developing and are already, you know, getting it out there and using, uh, which, which kind of tracks all the experiences and education that youth have had in conservation space and then help them create a portfolio that allows them to get scholarships, get into higher education, eventually get better jobs because without job opportunities, it's, you know, one thing to be like, well, we need to educate you, but uh, it doesn't matter how much you know or care 
if you can't get a job and your family's desperate and you're poor and you're you're separated from these spaces that some sometimes and a lot of times validly seen as rich people making a bunch of money off of tourists international tourists and you're not getting any benefit from that it's really hard to see how you're gonna change the interaction between those communities and these reserves and stop the poaching so a big part of it is really engaging the communities with the reserves finding ways for them to benefit more whether that's financially um you know maybe getting some game meat uh you know getting better jobs getting higher positions within these reserves actually having lodges that are community run things like that where they have ownership and responsibility because if you care and you're benefiting from this amazing place then you're going to be the people that are saying hey you guys got to get out of town because you're not going to poach our wildlife so that's the bigger change that really needs to happen for this yeah, to it, stop. It's hard to care about wildlife if you're starving, right? If you're yeah. in a bad situation. So, um, yeah, I can definitely see making, you know, making those connections with the community, giving, you know, working with the community to try to give them the opportunity to have, you know, even just a, a slightly better life you know a little mm. bit of opportunity could definitely go a long way you mentioned anton being being the hero uh, of the story um why like give a little bit about anton's story and yeah. um what make what made him such a compelling figure throughout the movie yeah absolutely i mean anton is just an amazing human being <clears throat> excuse me i met him in 2018 on that first trip that i went to south africa it was like a two-week whirlwind trip where uh, Matt and I it was just a camera and a microphone and we were trying to capture these storylines to to finish out the the arc of the main characters in this film and I just remember from the first time meeting him it just like instantly gains your respect you respect him he respects you he just has so much passion and love for what he's doing so it's you know he's dressed up in kind of this military ranger looking outfit with a rifle has this ranger team but uh, he just has such a soft voice and very heartfelt human being. And when I was there in 2020, I got to spend so much time with him because I was out there capturing this new story and working with his team and probably like endless hours driving around on the reserve with him, getting to know more, talking about his story. And I mean, his story is super compelling. We don't cover it much in the film, his backstory, but you know, he came from a pretty, pretty poor family that immigrated from Mozambique, um, he got a job at Timbavadi as basically like maintenance. So doing, you know, road building, things like that. I think he was pretty young at that time, 16, 17. And the reserve needed some more Rangers. So they were going to put on a selection and the reserve manager, the warden there, you know, saw that Anton had this, this spirit. He was always watching the Rangers, uh, just was a great person, always hardworking. So he invited him to sign up for this ranger selection. And I remember Anton telling me he, you know, it was like a hundred, hundred guys. Uh, they set him up at this one gate and I think they had to run 10 kilometers. And most of the people weren't prepared. They were just in like whatever shoes they had on at the time, their basic clothes. It was a really hot day. And he's like, whoever gets to the end of this in so much time, will will get a chance to go through the ranger selection which is then another intense physical thing so it's like first you got to do this challenge to even have a chance and so they they like told him to start running and anton just says he remembers he was like running running uh like next thing he knows he's like passing this person passing this person 
gets through this whole thing. And by the end, he's like the, the fifth or second person that made it to the end. And he, he's like, wow, I didn't even realize I had that in me that I was like this athletic or, you know, wanted it this bad. And from, from that point on, he was just completely dedicated to it. He went from, you know, kind of entry level ranger all the way up to sort of middle management ranger to eventually leading the entire team there at Timbavati private nature reserve. And even, even in terms of like, he didn't, ha he couldn't speak English when he started that. And by the time I got to him, you know, he was a very eloquent man in English. And he has a great story with that too, where he was, he was learning a little bit from Ruben, who was at the wildlife college doing the training. So he's trying to learn English from him. But he said what really helped him get over the line was uh, he had this day where he was trying to take a nap in the middle of the day. And this bird just had this loud call and it was driving him nuts. And he went out and looked at it and he said it was this beautiful red bird and he didn't know what it was, but, you know, he wanted to learn more. So he found some student that was staying at Timavati, got a bird book from them and ended up keeping it and just like studying it relentlessly. And through that process, that's how he learned English. He would just read the, he had to learn the words that were in English in the book to learn the birds. And so he learned English, he learned birds. And I would, on these rides, you know, he could, he could spot any, any bird on the reserve, any wildlife for the most part. He knew the trees, the, the flowers, like he knew everything about, about that ecosystem and how they, things interacted on top of being this amazing ranger that was a warrior that was fighting these poachers that, uh, you know, he was an amazing person to interact with the communities because he just could speak to people on both sides, the reserves and the communities. And yeah, just became a really good friend. Uh, and um, yeah, so much respect and love for that man. You know, it, it's people like that, that, you know, they, they sort of, what they're doing sort of encompasses their entire life. You know, and they see um, an opportunity to maybe get out of a situation that they're in that's not great. Um, and they realize that if they seize that opportunity, they it can end up being built into something more. Um, and that, you know, when they do that, they get that passion, right, mm. that, that you're talking about and just want to keep learning more. And then it's awesome. It's always awesome for me to hear about people that everything that they learn, they then want to teach other people that stuff, mm. you know, and, and not, not always in an educational setting, right. Just driving through a preserve, you know, in a truck and you see a bird and you know, the, what bird is that? And then not only does that person tell you the name of that bird, but then tells you everything about the bird. <laughs> and you might only grasp, you know, one or two things that you remember after, uh, from that, but you know, a person who has that much knowledge and that much passion is very infectious. Yeah. And he was that kind of person. I mean, he was always willing to talk and engage and, you know, I don't, I wouldn't call it educate, but yeah, just, uh, inspire you. And if, if you were curious, he, he was there to, to give you that information. Um, yeah, just a, an amazing human being. I remember he said he always wanted to be a soldier and that's, that's kind of where his initial drive and his desire to be a part of the Rangers came from and for whatever reason he wasn't able to have that opportunity to be a soldier but he's like i get to do that and more through what we're doing to protect this wildlife and you know he another thing too that's kind of heartbreaking to listen to now i was just going through some of his messages and we could talk about why soon but but yeah he would he would say that you know i'm, I'm not doing this for myself i'm doing it for my children and my children's children 
and for the whole world. He's like, I realized that this wildlife isn't just South Africa's heritage, but it's the world's. And, you know, I'm honored to be able to protect this for everyone else. So for him, it, it truly was a calling. I mean, he said a calling from God and he believed it. And that's what he dedicated his life to. You mentioned heartbreaking. Um, be remiss if we don't give some time to, to talk about how things have sort of played out since you've come back. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that heartbreaking aspect? Yeah, yeah. So I had that trip in 2020. Um, we ended up getting control of Rhino Man as the nonprofit. And so we, we'd shot this new film, but halfway through that, we realized, okay, we're going to get Rhino Man. And I think we just realized we had this great story we wanted to tell and we didn't want to let it go. So we, we decided to honor that. And that's been our main focus is finishing Rhino Man. And so the last couple of years I've been here in Atlanta uh, completing the film, working with some amazing people to create an amazing sound score and uh, edit the film. Um, basically got it all the way to this point where we were ready to wrap it up about a month ago. And we're kind of closing the book. And I was just starting to reach out to, to some potential celebrities to bring on someone, you know, for us to get a big name on the project would be huge because then it's going to really get us in front of as many people as we need to. It's just, there's a lot of competition out there in the filmmaking world. So that was, that's always been a big goal. And so we're starting to do that. And then I got a call from Matt on, it was a Wednesday morning, I believe July 27th. And he told me that the night before Anton had been killed. And I mean, that was, that was pretty devastating to hear. Uh, it's still, I don't know if I've fully processed it. Uh, it's been pretty recent and things have been crazy since, but essentially what happened was, you know, earlier in the year, he was even leaving messages with us saying that, you know, there's, there's a crime syndicate that has a hit, hit out on him. They've hired a couple of guys. They're, they're trying to kill him. They're coming after him. Uh, he was moving his family around from the house. Uh, he was hiding out at the reserve, trying to escape these guys, evade them, you know, working with law enforcement, trying to catch them. Uh, they kind of went back and forth for two or three months where he was very stressed out. It was some of the most tense I've ever heard him and just, you know, um, challenged. And, you know, it was, I just tried to give as much support and the team tried to give as much support as we could. Uh, just, you know, letting him know we're here for him and, and talking to him. And, and yeah, so it, it kind of got to the point where they felt like they chased these guys off and, you know, they changed their numbers. The police kind of scared them. Uh, after a couple of months, Anton was starting to feel more relaxed, feeling like, yeah, he could kind of get back to normal. I just listened yesterday to some of these messages and he was saying, yeah, like I want to participate more online again. I want to come to GCC meetings because he's always been kind of a technical advisor for us and helping this project is inspired by him. And yeah, he was just like feeling back to normal. And then I think Matt actually had a meal with him a week before this incident. And he was talking about retirement and looking to the future and, and helping out in different ways. So yeah, it's just, it's super tragic because essentially what happened, two guys showed up in a car, pretended like it was broken down on the side of the road in front of his house. They went up to the house, uh, asked for some help. I believe his wife and one of his sons started getting water for them for the radiator or something like that. 
And while they were there, they, they kind of walked around the house and noticed that Anton was working on his truck on the side of the house. He was trying to get it ready. He had a drive or something he had to do later that night. And yeah, they just approached him and, and pulled out weapons and shot him right there in cold blood in front of his family. And his wife let out a scream and they turned around and shot her in the stomach. Uh, I think the kids and everyone scattered and, and, you know, they were threatening everyone's lives. These two men got in the car, took off. And by the time help got there, Anton passed away. Luckily, the wife is, is uh, in recovery and I think she's going to make a full recovery. But yeah, it's just been a, a terrible, heartbreaking moment, especially just realizing that this man that had so much passion and love for wildlife and people and just wanting to do the right thing and to better the world was killed because of that love and passion. Um, it's just like, it's, it's pretty devastating. I mean, I really, really had a tough time of it for a few days there. Um, and, you know, in the midst of it, we, we all kind of came together and tried to, to bring as much good as we could out of it. And we created this, uh, it's called the Anton Zimba education trust. Uh, so it's four partners, global conservation Corps, Southern African wildlife college, Timbavati private nature reserve and elephants alive came together to create this trust to raise funds for first for his kids to help them with higher education when they get a little older. And then if there's enough left over to kind of start an endowment for future generations to be able to get conservation education and opportunities. So you can learn more about that at antonzimba.com. It's M-Z or yeah, M-Z-I-M-B-A. <laughs> I have to spell it out loud, put the link somewhere, but but yeah, and the Timbavati Private Nature Reserve also did an amazing job raising a bunch of money for immediate family relief because everything from, you know, health bills to trauma care to just food and things like that are going to be super important in this time. So, yeah, it's been it's been a wild a wild month, um, and now it's kind of like we had this film done, and now the challenge is: do we put it out as it was, or do we try to incorporate some of these? events into the film because they could be very powerful in, in getting people to take action and, and participate in a social impact campaign that we've been developing too. So yeah, it's, um, it's been tragic. It's been heartbreaking and yeah, I miss a, a good friend. Have an audio issue. Mm, no worries. Take your time. You know, a, a story like that, um, there's 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 no words that that can really be said the, that reached a magnitude. Um, but just simply, it, it, I hear a story like that and I think it's just not fair. Right. Like here's someone that that did so much amazing work during their life, um, had so much more work that he wanted to do. And it you know, his life is cut short. And it's not just that he's no longer around, <clears throat> you know, his wife has to go on without him. His kids have to go on without him. Um, you know, the friends that he made, like you have to go on um, without him. So 
like I said, it, words are, are, are tough in that regard, but it really is just not fair. And it's all, it's good to hear that, you know, organizations have stepped up and his friends have stepped up. It's just great to hear that organizations and friends have stepped up to not only help the family, but really try to help the community at large um, in his honor. Um, it's unfortunate that that has to take place, but, you know, try to make the, the best out of a situation, terrible, terrible situation that you can. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, he touched so many people that it's it's been pretty amazing to see all the people that have come together. I mean, even... Prince William tweeted the day after he was killed about Anton. He had met him, I think, back in November over a Zoom call related to a lot of the work he does in the area with conservation. And just through that call, he he touched uh, Prince William's heart, and he's been dedicated to to you know pushing for justice and you know support for these rangers. So it's been pretty inspiring to see the legacy that Anton has left already. And, you know, I think for me, it's, it's been challenging because I know one of the fears that we always had as we were making this and we talked to Anton about it is, you know, when we put this film into the world, it's going to make you more um, prominent and people are going to see you and, and recognize you for what you're doing. And it could put you in harm's way. And shortly after this, it was just like wrestling with that and thinking, you know, like, uh, did we have, a bit to play in, in the threats that were coming. And, and we had this amazing poster created by this artist, Marcel van Lewitt, a Dutch artist, does this amazing surrealist art with wildlife. And he, he did this great poster. You could see it. We've, we've been sharing it with Anton in the center and then these rhinos kind of overlapping his face. And it's beautiful. But at the bottom, it's like these lines are just even more haunting now. We had, you know, would you risk your life to save a species? And kind of, I remember the first time looking that after Anton passed away and it just kind of, I don't know, hit me and, and broke my heart and um, in a lot of ways. But I think what what gave me more confidence is just recently listening to some of those messages. I, I listened to the one where I shared the poster with him and he was like, oh, it's beautiful. I'm so proud of this. Like, I'm so excited where this film is going and we need to get it out to the world and, and show what the Rangers are doing. So just knowing that he still wanted it, even with all these potential threats that, you know, we need to, to honor that and get this story out more than ever now and, and do him justice and, and support the Rangers around the world that are doing this work uh, with this film and tell people this story so that they can get the help they need. Sort of to that end, you know, the idea of getting this out to as many people as, as we can to not just tell the important story of the need to protect these rhinos, the people behind protecting these rhinos, but also Anton's story, you know, you've been putting a lot of work into getting word out about this. Um, so tell, tell people, how can they find the film? How can they find more information? Like what all have you been doing to try to get word out about the situation? 
Yeah. I mean, I started this out as like a, going into it as a filmmaker and I'm like, oh, I'm just going to make an exciting documentary. This is going to be fun. And, you know, maybe it'll take a year or two. And now it's like four or five years in and I'm, I'm so deep in this topic and world and, uh, you know, became so close to the people involved that it's really near and dear to me to, to get this out in as big a way as possible beyond just the film. So, you know, in terms of when the film's going to come out, we were hoping early 2023, you know, like I said, we were wrapping the film up. We were getting ready to maybe resubmit to some festivals, hoping to get on a celebrity attached. Um, it might be a little bit longer now, you know, hopefully still in 2023, maybe mid 2023, but I feel like I need the space to, digest all that's happened and see if if and how we could incorporate this into the film because we have this beautiful ending and i i don't want to ruin that but i also want to do you know, i want to honor what what's happened because if it can be incorporated in a powerful way i think you know it really drives home the seriousness of this situation and connected to the film is uh, a social impact campaign that we've been developing for the last couple of years with different partners and part of that is going to be raising funds for ranger training, you know, the future rangers program with youth, uh, fallen rangers funds, kind of partnering with all these amazing organizations. And then uh, also finding ways that people can either write letters or petitions to government or international organizations that can really put pressure to, to create better job uh, and work life balance, you know, for rangers because, you know, whether that's pay, equipment, training, uh, health and life insurance. There's a lot of different things that rangers aren't getting in a lot of these places, not only in Africa, but in Asia, South America. I mean, even in the US, rangers don't get paid a ton comparatively <laughs> to other jobs. So, you know, they really are frontline workers out there, just like police and fire, um, doing some really amazing work and also protecting our ecosystem. So finding ways that they can support in that way, do community screenings around these reserves so that people can be inspired to grow up to be like these heroes and create local heroes and connect them to what's going on in these reserves in different ways, potentially partnering with someone like wild aid, uh, to get this into the Asian market to hopefully curb the demand and show people like using horn. This is, this is the result of it. So, cause there's a lot of people that just don't make that connection either. Um, uh, so there's a lot of different things we're doing on the social impact side, and there'll be a call to action at the end of the film once it's complete. I think the best way to stay in touch with us right now is you can go to rhinomanthemovie.org or on most social platforms, we're at, at rhinomanthemovie or at rhinomanmovie. And we're doing a lot of things to highlight other organizations that are doing work in the space, not only through reposting some of their Instagrams and Facebooks and social media, but also I've I started the Rhino Man podcast as a way to bring more awareness to the topic whether that's Rangers, the rhino poaching crisis, and to kind of build up some momentum for the release of this film. So I'm interviewing some really cool people that are at the top of everything to do with Rangers and rhinos from, just did one with General Johan Yusta who ran Kruger National Park's uh, Ranger Corps for I think five years. Uh, and he gives amazing context to this whole poaching crisis and the story and and how the Rangers are combating that. And, and even from his perspective, he, you know, he was always saying, I want to secure the park from the outside in, which is similar to what we were talking about, whether that's curbing the demands, you know, community engagement, things like that. 
because he he realizes that you can't just have a military force that's not going to be the end goal so so yeah this podcast is, has been a really fun way to connect with a lot of people um help bring awareness to these different topics uh, that's on spotify and apple Podcasts and all the podcast places but if you go to the website and the social media you'll you'll kind of be able to track all these different things that we're doing to prepare the release of this film and you know for everyone that's that's listening it all the links to you know the the funding for anton uh and you know right man the movie and the podcast and on their social media check down in the episode details in those episode notes all those links are going to be down there uh, all you have to do is just click on them and it'll take you to whatever you want to do make sure you follow on instagram all that good stuff you know the social media you know john you're doing you have done and are continuing to do amazing work around a very important topic and uh, i want to thank you for for taking that step for, for now really taking that passion that you found in these park rangers and sort of embodying it yourself and putting it out there. Um, it, it's people like you that are going to help not as much as the park rangers, but you know, right up there with them, help the most um, to bring the awareness to people that don't understand the crisis don't even maybe don't even realize that it that it's out there so thank you for doing that and you know thank you for coming on and, and sharing this story with us yeah jason thank you and yeah i appreciate all of the work you're doing as well in conservation and uh yeah i've listened to some of your episodes and some great amazing work and yeah it takes it takes a, a village or you know world to to solve these problems and raising awareness about these rangers and the work they're doing not only in South Africa, but around the world is uh, very near and dear to me. So any way to get that word out and to share those stories, uh, really appreciate it. All right, that'll do it for another episode here on the Conservation Unfiltered podcast. Big thank you to everyone that is listening. Really appreciate uh, all the support. Big thanks to, to John for coming on. Uh, one thing I want you to hopefully notice, you might have heard a uh, new song at the beginning of the episode before my intro, and that is the actual official Rhino Man song. It is sang by uh, Paul Tomas, uh, and it tells a story of these African Rangers, and that is just uh, a great tidbit to show like just how passionate uh, the people involved in protecting these rhinos really, really are. Um, you know, rhinos are something that need to be protected. There's dwindling numbers, you know, and as John said, you know, these criminal syndicates uh, are just paying so much money that these locals, you know, can't help themselves and, and are doing things that are not good for the environment, not good for the rhinos, not good for conservation, really just not good for just, you know, their general economic status. But hence the world we live in at times, uh, which really gets shown uh, as, an, as an example whenever you hear John talk about Anton and, and his story and... Um, you know, it's a heartbreaking story, and it's frustrating to hear about someone who is doing such good work and is so dedicated to the work that they're doing, um, and then, you know, 
ends up someone takes their life because of that. And then even more heartbreaking when you think about, you know, his wife and, and kids that are left behind. Uh, so what I need you, everyone to do is take a look at the, the episode notes, the details uh, for this episode. There are a ton of links in there. There are links to the Rhino Man movie website. Um, there's a link to the Rhino, Moon, Rhino Man movie podcast. Uh, their Instagram accounts, their Twitter accounts, Facebook account. Um, the GoFundMe page for Anton is on there. I mean, everything that you need to learn more about this uh, project that will hopefully be uh, out next year, um, you know, research it, look at it, look at this stuff. It, it's really eye-opening, eye-opening stuff out there um, th that is just put in such easy, accessible places now. Uh, if you like John, great, uh, because you're going to hear from him again. Uh, once this movie, uh, this documentary gets put out, you're definitely going to be hearing from him again uh, as we get closer to that and then, you know, the release date. So uh, last but not least, again, thank you. Get outside. Take someone with you. And as always, stay wild. <laughs>